Hi, I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for listening to this podcast. There are many more podcasts available at MyFaithRadio.com. Your support makes this possible. Thank you. And a warm welcome. You're listening to the Afternoon Show with me. I'm Bill Arnold, competing daily against your power nap. You know, I just got a call about 20 minutes ago from Rob Bluey, and he said, hey, I can't make it today. And I said, that's okay. And he said, how about uh, John Cooper? I said, uh, you know, that's awesome. John Cooper is the Senior Advisor of Communications uh, at the Heritage Foundation, and he's got an amazing uh, resume Many uh, many items I'd like to talk about with him if we have time because we have a lot of stuff to cover. John, thanks for stepping in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be with you. Yeah, tell us briefly a little bit about your um, your Air Force experience. Yeah, so I uh, went to college and, and was in ROTC uh, and graduated college and got my commission as an officer in, in the U.S. Air Force. I uh, was a public affairs officer for several years, uh, both on active duty and in the reserve. And uh, it was a, gr- a great experience. Uh, I got to do a lot of uh, really great comm support for some really important missions uh, that the Air Force uh, does every day and has been doing for decades. And uh, it was a lot of fun, a lot of different places I got to see. And, uh, you know, then I was ended up here in D.C. So uh, kind of here I am. Yeah, so you were uh, at Langley for a while and also at Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri? That's right. Yeah, Langley. Uh, for those of you who know the, the listeners that know, the F twenty two Raptor is the main the main uh, platform there that they that they fly. And then at uh, Whiteman was the B two, you know, the big bat wing stealth bomber uh, that you see fly over the Rose Bowl and other big sporting events. Uh, really cool missions. Uh, they do some really amazing things, and uh, I got to be around that firsthand and and tell the public about it firsthand as well, which is a lot of fun. Yeah, that must have been a blast. Uh, you also. Uh, must have had some really great stories uh, from your days uh, in the Air Force. Do you have uh, 45 seconds to tell one? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think the, the coolest thing, one of the coolest things I got to do uh, was we did, it was almost a, they called it a deployment, but it was, it was within the country. Uh, we kind of took some F-22s and they wanted to do some training down in Savannah, Georgia. And so we did this kind of mini stand-up deployment uh, very short notice down to Savannah to train with the National Guard, and I uh, got to hop on a KC-35 uh, and watch, you know, the F-22s fly up behind us and refuel. Oh, wow. Uh, it was just really neat. It was kind of like flying in a metal tube because there's no windows, obviously, except <laughs> for a couple on the doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was really neat to go back there, see the boom, and, you know, watch them you know, kind of come up, get refueled, and, and go about their way on the way down to Georgia. Well, thank you for your years of service, and and sounds like you had a, a great career with the Air Force, and you probably made a lot of friends and have a lot of long term friendships out of that. Yeah, there's a lot of good people. I mean, you you definitely develop some really great teams, and uh, it's always hard because there's always people moving. You know, people get reassigned or they you know go uh, deploy or whatever it might be. But you even in the short time that you have together, uh, you develop some pretty close relationships because you're doing a lot of work together, and uh, you know what you're working on is important. Yeah. Well, I appreciate uh, you coming on the show today, um, and I would love to ask you just some questions about what's going on in our nation's capital and what are some of the updates on things like the border and immigration. Can you give us an update? I know you spent a lot of energy there, so I'd love to hear. 
Yeah, well, it's uh, only bad news on the border front, unfortunately, for the most part. Uh, you know, you may have seen Griff Jenkins over at Fox News tweeted this weekend that uh, sources at Customs and Border Protection have been telling him that in December, the, the numbers that they're being given uh, are showing that they're going to they're going to show that they encountered more than 250,000 or they recorded 250,000 plus uh, apprehensions at the border in one month. Oh, wow. Uh, that's that's an all-time record. It's never been that high in U.S. history before, and it makes it 10 months in a row now where the Obama, or excuse me, the Biden administration has recorded 10, uh, 10 months of 200,000-plus apprehensions. And put that in context for you, uh, President Obama's former DHS secretary, okay, who was running Department of Homeland Security under Obama, Jay Johnson, a couple years back said that they considered it a crisis if they had 1,000 encounters a day. That comes out to about 30,000 encounters in a month, 30,000. Mm-hmm. And we've had 10 months in a row now of 200 plus thousand. This is simply unsustainable. And the border patrol simply cannot deal with this amount uh, of illegal aliens that are coming to the border every single day by the droves. They're simply being processed, released into the country. And many of them are here to stay because one, uh, they don't show up for their court hearings. And two, under President Biden, ICE is not really authorized to remove most of those who are here illegally unless they fit into very specific categories like potential terrorist or, or a spy. So it's a, it's a problem of, of epic proportions. It's one we've never seen before, and it's having massive spillover effects for everyone in the country. Mm-hmm. John Cooper is my guest, uh, f- filling in today for Rob Bluey. Uh, he's a senior advisor in communications uh, at the Heritage Foundation. So, uh, John, maybe just uh, go to your role as husband and father here um, and say, how does that make you feel that there's that many people coming across the border? Now you're just speaking as a citizen. Yeah, well, it's it's so frustrating to watch because one, well, for a number of reasons. One, it shows that the government that is supposed to, you know, they're charged with upholding and defending the laws of this country and the Constitution. They're doing the exact opposite. They are standing by and putting in place policies that undermine the law, that undermine not just the law and the Constitution, but they undermine our security and our safety as Americans, right? Okay, so you have that, and I get to see, I have a first uh, front row seat to it here in D.C. to watch it all happen, right? Uh, But more broadly, what's happening with all those spillover effects that I mentioned, consider, just look at the fentanyl crisis, right? You have the leading cause of death for Americans age 18 to 45 is now fentanyl mm-hmm. overdoses. And most of that fentanyl comes across southern border. It comes from Mexico. The precursors, the things that go into making fentanyl come from China. They make their way to Mexico where it's super easy and super cheap to produce this you know, narcotic. And it's smuggled you know, by the tons into the United States. Now, the Border Patrol does a great job of catching some of it at ports of entry, but more and more of it's coming across in between the ports of entry or, you know, kind of across the border where it's unguarded. Right. And it, there's so much of it that it's flowing into our communities. And, yeah, you know, my son is is about a year and a half old, so he's not even really, you know, he's not in school. He's not you know, making friends and all those things. But. I shudder to think of, you know, what happens when he's 15 and 16 and 17 and someone, you know, offers him a, a drug you know, or any, any parent thinking about this. Mm-hmm. You know, we would all want them to, first of all, reject that and say no to it. But, but what if that kid makes a mistake, right? You don't want that mistake to be the last mistake he ever makes. And increasingly, that's more of a threat and a possibility because of how much fentanyl is flooding our streets 
And it only takes one mistake with a drug this deadly. And so that just goes to show how even if you're not living in a border town or a border state, what happens at the border is the opposite of, you know, it's exactly the opposite of Vegas. What happens at the border does not stay at the border. Okay. It, it comes into every community and every town in this country. It, it has devastating impacts. And that's just, that's just one of them. Mm-hmm. All right, John, there's a statistic that I read at the dailysignal.com. Head over to dailysignal.com. That said 16% of Gen Z, only 16 are, are proud to be Americans. What can we do about that? Yeah, it's, I saw that poll, too, and it was, it was devastating. Um, and, and my generation was only, I think, in the 30% range. So it's, it's a problem that's getting worse with each new generation. And it fundamentally goes back to the fact that at the youngest ages, children are not being educated about this country. They're not being accurately educated, I should say. Um, we're not teaching kids the, the uniqueness that America holds in, in the pantheon of history. Right. And how unique and how special what we have done in this country over the last 230 years or so is so special uh, through the Constitution, through the Declaration and through all of the 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 means of government and the ways that we peacefully transfer power, the way that we have civilian control of the military. We have all of these things that are so, you know, different societies in different parts of history have had maybe one or two of those aspects, but they haven't had them all together. And and those those societies have fallen. And part of it's because they didn't have that underpinning that we have in our Constitution and with our uh, with the value system that it represents. And we're not educating kids about that. And instead, they're learning things about the 1619 Project and other nonsense like that, about how America's racist and America's problematic and our founding was horrible and all these different things. They're not learning the truth about why America is so special. And does that mean we're perfect? No, it, it does not. But it does mean that because of who we are as a people and because of our system of government and our representative republic where everyone has the right to make their voice heard, to be involved, we can fix the problems that we have had in the past and we can make our society better. And you can't say that for almost any other nation on the planet, especially a nation so powerful and influential. And so it fundamentally is a, is a matter of education. It goes back to both in school and in the home, teaching kids about how amazing this country is and why it's so special within you know, all of human history. And then how can we continue to make it even better? How can we continue to uh, improve on that experiment that started, you know, even more than 230 years ago, but especially, you know, they're late in the 1700s. Mm-hmm. John Cooper, you're sounding like a man who's uh, had a full night's sleep. So your one and a half year old must be sleeping through the night. <laughs> We've been pretty fortunate. He's <laughs> always been a good sleeper. So. Yeah, I can sense a guy who's got a good night's sleep because that's, uh, that's what I'm hearing in you. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back with John Cooper. He's a senior advisor communications at the Heritage Foundation. Awfully nice of him to be filling in for our regular friend Rob Bluey today. If you have a question for John Cooper, let me know what it is. The text line is open just for you. That number is 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Faith Radio and Afternoons with Bill podcasts are available because of listener support. If you are a supporter... Thank you so much becoming a supporter today by visiting MyFaithRadio.com.
I know that walk-up music sounds like Rob Bluey's, but it's actually John Cooper who's in today. He's a senior advisor for communications at the Heritage Foundation. John, are there a lot of uh, junior advisors, and do you get to boss them around? <laughs> um, can I plead the fifth on that one? <laughs> you I, don't, have... I don't know what Rob would say if I, if I gave you the right answer. <laughs> All right. Let's talk about inflation. We did get a little reprieve in December, uh, decreased 0.1%, but that was like the only month that it went down. And I think consumers are still feeling the crush. Yeah. And it's, it's still up, I think it was six and a half percent year over year. So this time last year, you know, it's, it's 6.5%, six and a half percent higher than it was. And we're still feeling that and it's still devastating. I know it's, it's not fun for me and my wife when we go to the grocery store to, you know, to take care of our grocery needs or go, you know, buy gas. I, even this week, you know, watching over the last few days, eggs have been the big, the big problem. And I'm seeing people buying eggs for $11. Yeah. Just, wow. How is that possible in the United States of America? Yeah. I mean, I had a $63 omelet the other day, so that should have been a clue that eggs, <laughs> egg prices are up. All right, John, here's a question from a listener. What can parents do about the anti-Columbus version of Columbus Day and other problems in woke schools? My own family is afraid for me to act with all the negative press about parents who have tried. That's a great question. And I would say in this age, in this, this time, uh, there's a unique opportunity that didn't even exist, I don't think, before COVID. And what we have seen since COVID started and, and parents saw their kids in, in, in the home doing remote learning, quote unquote, they really got a first row seat to kind of the nonsense that their kids were learning across a multitude of different issues. And so you saw these parent meetings at school board meetings or parents, you know, show up school board meetings. Uh, Loudoun County here in Virginia in particular was a great example of parents saying we've had enough of this woke nonsense, CRT, of watering down standards of, of achievement, all these different things. We are done with that. And they are demanding change. And in many cases, they're replacing, you know, they're running for school board seats and they're getting on school boards and replacing these far left, woke kind of uh, bureaucrats who just want to indoctrinate kids. Uh, and so whether it's running for your school board or showing up to your school board meetings, there are a lot of parents who feel the same way. They want things to change. They want things to be different. And they're just they might be afraid to do that. But there are so many parents out there that feel that way. And if you all band together, you can do some pretty powerful things. And the last two years are, are really evidence of that. Mm-hmm. John, would you educate us a little bit on classified material? And it seems like every president has access to them and they've got all kinds of privileges and rights. And now I know that there's uh, President Biden has, has apparently had some classified material that uh, he's being uh, criticized for. Uh, it seems like every president at some point has had classified material in, in their uh, in their uh, um, at their home or somewhere in storage. What's up with that? Yeah, well, rule number one, don't leave classified material in your garage next to your Corvette. That should be the number one rule. <laughs> mm-hmm. okay. That's very simple, very straightforward. Uh, but no, yeah, classified material exists, and there's a lot of it, and there's a lot of different classifications of of what classified, what, what's, what tier of classified that a document might fall into, which is all really boring and probably isn't very interesting radio. But there's a lot of tiers, and let's leave it at that. Um, Regardless, though, whether it's the lowest tier of classified material or the highest tier, there are standards and processes by which it can be declassified and by which it has to be handled. And what we have seen with the Biden, with Joe Biden here, 
uh, it seems like documents even from his time as vice president made their way into his think tank here in D.C., into his aforementioned garage, and uh, into his house in Delaware, and who knows where else at this point. So what you essentially have is is a former vice president, current sitting president, uh, mishandling classified uh, information, and then essentially covering it up publicly, because uh, we know that when they were notified of this of this discovery back in early November before the midterms, the the White House apparently notified the DOJ. They notified the the Archives Administration here in D.C. and one or two other players. But obviously, nothing public was ever you know nothing was ever made public until a couple of few days ago, right? Mm-hmm. Who know, who knows how that impacted the midterms? We we will never know, I guess. Uh, but we do know that the Biden administration covered it up. They essentially covered it up, and uh, it's only because of some good reporting that we even know about that. Uh, at this point, and they continue to kind of obfuscate the truth and be shady and kind of, uh, you know, playing under the table a little bit here with how they're addressing it in the White House press briefings and so forth. So it's it's really a mess all around, and it's all the more so a mess because of how critical Biden was of, of President Trump, you know, with the documents found at Mar-a-Lago. So really just it's, it's, it's a great example of D.C. hypocrisy. Yeah, because Trump obviously had documents that he had in a what I thought or believed was a, some kind of secure, I, I would assume Mar-a-Lago is pretty secure, um, and then yet they had a, a raid of his uh, of his home. Uh, why was that not the approach they used with President Biden in his home? Well, exactly, and that's the question that so many of us want answered. You know, the Oversight Project here at Heritage, you know, they have filed some Freedom of Information Act requests to get to the bottom of that. You know, what happened, who knew what and when, and, and why were certain processes you know, procedures followed in, in the, the Trump case, but not in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, because fundamentally, at the end of the day, if you really want to boil it down, both cases involved classified documents, and they were handled very, very differently. And right now, what's different about the Biden administration's case is we don't even know if there are other documents outstanding. If you look back to last week, Karine Jean-Pierre from the White House podium uh, basically said that the, the investigation was done, was complete, and there were no more searches. And then we fi- find out, you know, over the weekend and into today that she had to answer for, they're actually, though, they're still actually looking and they're still finding more. Mm-hmm. With, with Trump, it was pretty cut and dry. You know, they, they, they know what was, what was where, and, and it was kind of, they went in, got it, and, and then left, essentially. Uh, it wasn't this ongoing kind of like, are they done? Is there more? You know, over and over again. But we're getting this drip, drip, drip with the Biden administration because they're not being honest about it. Mm-hmm. All right, John Cooper, let me ask you about um, big tech and election integrity. I know that's back in the news with the, uh, the GOP looking to do some investigating. Yeah, well, I mean, kind of uh, one of our one of our folks here at Heritage who shares the, uh, the oversight project that I just mentioned, uh, Mike Howell. He's a great, great guy and, and knows about oversight. He actually called the, the Biden docs um, election interference uh, by omission because we weren't told about what happened, even though the Biden administration was making such a big deal about it before the midterms in the context of Trump. But, yeah, it goes it really fundamentally. It goes back to the question of it should be easy to vote and hard to cheat. That's the fundamental basic premise that overwhelmingly Americans agree with, right? It's a fundamental dear bought right. And everyone should go be able to go to the ballot box and know that when they cast their vote, it's going to count. It's not going to be canceled out by fraud. It's not going to get lost. It's not going to be any number of things that would um, undermine the sanctity of the process or people's confidence in the process. There's no room for that. And there are a lot of states in this country 
who, you know, we grade on our own election integrity scorecard that you can check out at heritage.org that we put out uh, back in Christmas of 2021. And we've kept updating it depending on how states change their laws. There's a lot of states that change their rules in the middle of the game in 2020 during COVID for, for pandemic purposes, quote unquote, and they've never changed them back. And they were bad changes to begin with. And they, they're even worse changes now that there's no pandemic to blame it on. And so, you know, Republicans have to get serious about this and they have to understand that people's confidence in the process will impact voting down the line. And, and whether you're a Democrat or Republican, that's something that should bother you, right? You shouldn't be uh, rejoicing by other people not thinking their vote will matter, even if it benefits you politically. But unfortunately, the Democrat Party has kind of a vested interest of late in, in, in advancing that narrative, it seems. Mm-hmm. John, there are, it seems that there are plenty of female athletes right now that are, are threatening legal action if the NCAA is going to keep letting males compete in women's sports. Yeah, and that's another, you know, we talked about how parents uh, are showing up at school board meetings and, and really showing their power and, and their influence. Uh, these brave athletes are also kind of another group that is, is doing that in a, in a, at a much more frequent pace now because they don't feel alone. They feel that they know that others feel the same way. Um, and it's, it's tough right now because you have these big institutions, these major centers of power, whether it's in NCAA, uh, corporate media, the corporate world in general, they're all embracing this this, I don't even want to call it a fad because that almost sounds too flippant, but they're, they're embracing this transgender ideology and it, it completely undermines all the progress that, that women have made in, in, in regards to Title IX, you know, women's sports and other ways that women have, uh, you know, become on equal footing with, with men and have, have, have as many opportunities as men to enjoy and do the, the, you know, compete in the things that they love. And this movement cuts completely against that by letting men compete in women's sports. And, and it makes sense that, that folks like Riley Gaines, you know, the swimmer from, I believe, Kentucky, you know, folks like her are standing up and saying, no, this is not fair. It's not about politics. It's not about, uh, you know, ideology. It's about right and wrong. And it's about the fact that we're world-class athletes who are being forced to compete against, against men in our sports after training our entire lives. And that's, people understand that fundamentally that's just not fair. And it's something that, you know, even would have been laughed at several years ago, even not even that long ago. But now it's commonly accepted by an entire political party uh, and many, like I said, in corporate media, the corporate world um, and other major institutions. Mm-hmm. John, they're not going to take away our gas stoves, are they? <laughs> I sincerely hope not. Because, okay. uh, yeah, I, I don't know really what I would do because I hate electric. That's <laughs> yeah. Um, there is suggestion by the administration, though, of banning gas stoves. Um, what what should we th- be thinking about that? Uh, that it's a great example of the unending quest on the left to take more control of your private life, and okay. it's really it's really ironic because they're the ones who claim to be for choice and freedom and privacy and all these different you know buzzwords. In reality, they want to control almost every aspect of your life to the extent possible. Conservatives and other freedom-loving Americans are like, hey, you want to buy a gas stove? Go for it. That's completely your decision, mm-hmm. and no one should be able to tell you that you can't do it. Yeah. Should, should there be safety standards and all that? Yes, absolutely. No one's saying that. But it's a gas stove, people. Like, we've been using right. these for decades. <laughs> right. people, are, our people are fine. Right. John, tell Rob Blue you had a great time, and thanks for doing the show.
I'll do that. All right. Thank thanks. For having me. Thanks so much. John Cooper has been my guest, senior advisor at the Heritage Foundation. After a short break, we're back with Dr. Alex McFarland. Thank you for joining me today. I always look forward to speaking to my friend, Dr. Alex McFarland. And as we think about living with eternity in mind, I think that is the wisest way to live. And I want to bring that topic up with Alex today. Alex, welcome. Well, thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you. Yeah, thank you. Do you remember like when you're 19 and your, your parents say, you should save for your future. And you think, save for my future? You mean next week future? Or what are you talking about? It's, and I, I wonder if we have from a very early on, we have this interest in sort of meeting our more immediate needs than we are our long-term needs. You know, I was thinking about that this weekend, Bill. Nice. And that, it's one of the things that I, I am learning, but I'm learning it late in life, hopefully not too late, but... Uh, you know, it just seems like being 14, 15, 16 was just six months ago, <laughs> mm-hmm. r- rather than uh, actually, in my case, 40 years ago. Uh, but yeah, mom and dad were right. It, isn't it amazing? Um, I, I know that uh, Mark Twain was said to have said that when he was about 15 or 16, he thought his father was just one of the most ignorant people in the world. And by the time he was 25, he, he realized his father was one of the wisest people. And he said it was just amazing how much his dad learned in those 10 years. <laughs> I love that quote. I've thought about that often. But yeah. I know that we spend a lot of time uh, praying for our immediate needs, and I know God welcomes those prayer requests. But do you spend a lot of time worshiping and praising the God will one day take you from this short, brittle life into his eternal kingdom, and he's gone ahead and prepared a place for you. And I wonder if it would change how we look at some of our day-to-day circumstances. Oh, I think that's one of the wisest things, Bill. Um, And, do you know, a a number of Christian thinkers have talked about this, even C.S. Lewis did 70 years ago, how... Because there's been so much prosperity and technological achievement in the 20th century, um, we don't long for heaven like we once did. And, uh, you know, uh, my wife and I made our first trip to Africa in uh, 2020 and have been back a number of times, and actually Angie more than me, because she's gone to the Sudan on nursing medical mission trips. But we were in Africa one time, and uh, I was listening to some of the songs that the African Christians would sing, and um, I asked the translator, what are they saying? And so often the lines were, were like, um, life is hard here, but one day we'll be in heaven, and that will be glory, and we'll see Jesus, and then we'll be happy. Mm. And, you know, when you're in, in the bush country of Zambia, as we were, um, you know, life is hard. Life is not easy. But here in posh, you know, first world, 21st century America, I mean, even the most godly Christians 
can be pretty deeply enamored with the the perks of this world but hey first john 2 15 through 17 love not the world neither the things that are in the world for all that is in the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes the pride of life is passing away and the lust thereof but he does the will of the father will endure forever and so um you know we're we're in this world and god knows we have needs and god god meets our needs and many of our wants even but our heart and our loyalty is not to be with this world but the next yeah dr alex mcfarland is my guest you can learn more about him at alexmcfarland.com i'm i'm at matthew chapter 6 verses 19 to 21 right now and you know this alex do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wow. Those are convicting words for affluent evangelical Americans, aren't they? They are. Yeah. You know, I was just reading Proverbs 2, and of course Proverbs is, you know, all about wisdom. And it talks about not walking in the pathway of evil people, but walk in the pathways of God and uh, incline our ear to God's truth and our heart to wisdom. And it goes on, but it concludes, and it says, um, the upright will dwell in the land, and the perfect shall remain in it. And the upright, it, it not only means, you know, our, our place here on earth of God's blessing and favor, but our home in heaven. And what's interesting is um, the upright, the word, the Hebrew word there means straight, as in like morally straight, mm. and the perfect means righteous. Now, we are righteous, we're made righteous in the sight of God by putting our trust in Jesus and being born again. But while God converts our soul, we're also to allow God to shape our behaviors and our priorities, aren't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Just living with an eternal perspective on life, uh, something I've just been thinking about the last couple of weeks, and I thought, well, I'm going to talk to Alex about this, uh, because uh, we spend a lot of our day-to-day energy uh, trying to organize and execute our days, and we ask God for help for that day, and I think God honors every one of those prayer requests. But when I spend time praising and thanking God and praying and praising Him for my future in his eternal kingdom where he's gone ahead and prepared a place for me, I start to feel almost like my prayers become transcendent. Mm. Wow. Have you ever been like just praising God and it just, for lack of a better word, uh, there's just this rapturous joy that can just overwhelm your heart and soul when you think about how good God is to us and praising his name. And by the way, Bill, let me just say this. I was at um, a college speaking, this is probably about 10 years ago, and this one student, we were in front of about 400 students, and a guy kind of asked a little bit sarcastically, he's like, why does God, you know, oh, God's up in heaven saying to the human race, worship me, you know, is God on some cosmic ego trip or something like that? And and I felt like the Lord really gave me a, a good answer, and I said, well, do you know what? Even in calling us to worship him, that's an act of love on God's part, because the, the, the most alive we'll ever be is the closer we are to Jesus. And in worshiping God, 
drawing in close to the one who is the foundation of life. You know, God doesn't demand worship because it will aggrandize him. I mean, God doesn't change. He's eternal. Malachi 3 and Hebrews 13 says the Lord doesn't change, and he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even if everybody in the world worshiped God, it wouldn't make him bigger or better. And conversely, even if nobody worshiped the Lord, it wouldn't diminish him. So his call to worship must, for some reason, be for our benefit. And I, I told the student, I said, the most alive you'll ever be is the closer you are to Christ. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, the, the, the farthest you'll be from life and peace and blessing is away from God. So like you say, Bill, living with eternity in mind, which invariably will cause you to thank God, thank God for salvation, thank God for his sustenance, um, that's not only the whole point of life is to know our Savior, but that's the most alive and joyful and fulfilled that we'll ever be. Mm -hmm. So, Alex, if we think about trying to maintain this eternal perspective on life, it seems that there are some components that are essential for everyone who is listening right now, and that would be, for starters, one would need to be in a relationship with God through his son Jesus, which the Bible would describe as being born again. Amen. I mean, that, yeah, I mean, that is step one. Yeah. Uh, to, to know that you're saved. And uh, that's, we, we often talk about that, and, and I, I don't ever want to presume that everybody knows, but um, uh, one verse that really summarizes it is John six forty, where Jesus said, whoever sees the Son that's him himself, S-O-N, whoever sees the Son and believes in him will have everlasting life, and I will raise you up at the last day. Well, the way that you begin a relationship with Jesus is you, you have to admit that you're a sinner, and that as sinners, we, we do deserve God's judgment and God's condemnation. Uh, but God loves you, <laughs> dear listener, and so he sent his Son, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came to this planet, lived a perfect life, and when Jesus died on the cross, the appropriate measure of punishment that we deserved was poured onto Jesus. He suffered in our place. So, when you say, Dear Lord Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I'm turning from sin. That's repentance. That means I'm turning to Christ. And Lord, I'm asking you to save me. I do believe you are the Son of God as you said, and I accept what you did on the cross. I'm accepting that as the payment for my sins. So, Lord, I receive your gift. Please forgive me and help me to live for you. Uh, Bill, it's not so much the words you say, but it's the sincerity of your heart. But I just would encourage everybody listening, if you've, if you've never come to Christ, or maybe you're not sure, well, you can be sure, and you mm. can do this right now. And Literally, literally, Jesus is as close by as a prayer. Call out to him right now, and he will wash your sins away. Amen. Galatians 2.20, I know you've memorized this verse, Alex. I can almost promise you have, have you? Galatians uh, 2.20. Yes, I've been I crucified with Christ, and I no longer yes. live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That sounds like a complete and total surrender and allegiance. I mean, it, just imagine if that were our life motto. 
But um, let's go back a little bit. This is why I love talking to you, Bill. I mean, of all my friends, you, you are one of my friends that really knows the Word, and, and I think that's we, – you and I have some good fellowship uh, in our conversations about the Word of God. But go back to verse 16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Isn't it good? We don't have to try to earn it or work our way because we can't. But if we put our trust in Jesus, that faith or belief means trust, who he is, the Son of God, what did he do? He paid our sin debt on the cross. And like it says um, in verse 20 there that you mentioned, that um, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. Mm-hmm. That uh, We say the gospel is good news. It's great news, isn't it? It is the best. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. We're talking about an eternal perspective and, and living your life that way. And I know, Alex, you'll agree with me on this one. Uh, Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. So talk about how important it is not only to be spending time in God's Word, but being a student and studying it and writing things down and having fellowship with with other people and talking about God's rich, delicious Word. Well, yeah, especially nowadays when there's so much that seems to be up for grabs. Look, in in John 10.35, it's one of my favorite verses. Jesus said, the Scripture cannot be broken. Isn't that something? Wow. I mean, I mean, it just seems like nowadays um, Jesus being the only, only way, the only way of salvation, which is true, uh, but yet people debate that. Morality, um, sexual boundaries, morality, the nature of marriage, right and wrong. I mean, it's almost like we're trying to just redefine everything, and let's remember the only man that ever rose from the dead, the Lord Jesus. He said, the scripture cannot be broken. And, uh, you know, Proverbs, I'm, I'm, I'm reading Proverbs now, Bill, and it talks about the word of God, and it says in verse 3 of chapter 1, to receive instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity. And I, I looked up that word equity. I think we, we probably know what wisdom and judgment are, but equity means the true value of things. And if ever we needed to really know what is true and worthwhile versus what is false and futile, now is that time. And it's the Word of God that will help us know right from wrong, true from false, righteous from unrighteous, up from down. To your point, Bill, I mean, that's why we need to hide the Scriptures in our heart. So, yes, we might not sin against God, but just also so we can navigate life. Mm-hmm. Dr. Alex McFarland is my guest. We're going to take a little break, like we do around this time. But when we come back, we'll continue our discussion on living with an eternal perspective on life. Always a good reminder, because we have everyday emergencies and things that we're always asking for prayer, and God loves that. But let's be sure that we're focusing on our eternity and the eternal perspective that God gives us in life. We'll be right back.
Sign up for the free Bible in a Year reading plan at MyFaithRadio.com and get everything you need to follow the plan each day and stay on track, including a printed schedule. Sign up now at MyFaithRadio.com. So glad to be back with my friend, Dr. Alex McFarland. Learn more about Alex at alexmcfarland.com. And we're talking about living with an eternal perspective in life. And uh, Alex, when I, when I look at Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3, it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Boy, that's beautiful, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it is beautiful. Powerful. Yeah, and, you know, C.S. Lewis remarked that... See, here's the thing. There's this old kind of sarcastic quote. I've heard people say, well, so-and-so is so heavenly-minded that they're of no earthly good. Mm-hmm. But C.S. Lewis pointed out one time that the Christians that seem to do the most for this world are those that really think the most about the next. I mean, I think about some of the great, um, you know, compassion ministries, uh, benevolent ministries, whether it be, you know, medical missions or, you know, I, I know here in my home state of North Carolina, there's a group of engineers and they um, go to developing nations and they do infrastructure, whether it be fresh water or, you know, uh, sewage plants or, you know, they do, um, you know, infrastructure to help better the lives of people. And by building and engineering, they end up sharing the gospel. And yet they, everywhere Christianity goes, one of my favorite authors, uh, Rodney Stark, a twice Pulitzer nominated sociologist and historian, he he says, everywhere that Christianity goes, there is the betterment of the human condition, you know. And so, um, yeah, we are helping give a cup of cold water in Jesus' name, but we know that this world with all of its, um, you know, accomplishments, as as rich as that might be, I mean, this world is so temporary. Um, Bill, I know you've heard of the, the great Puritan writer John Owen. Does that name? Oh, right? yes. Oh, yes. Um, have you and I ever talked about John Owen? We have. we have. Yeah, we have. Yeah. I often say this. The, if, if there were a Hall of Fame for book titles, John Owen deserves to be in it. Greatest book title ever, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Mm. But John Owen said, um, one of Satan's greatest achievements is to make people think they have plenty of time before they die to consider eternity. And people have asked me, they'll call into our radio programs, they'll say, you know, um, will, will this send me to hell or will that send me to hell? I'll tell you what, will, what has put a lot of people in hell, procrastination. Mm. You know, I, I really think there are a lot of people that intended to deal with the God issue eventually, and then, heaven forbid, you know, they die. People die every day. Folks, you, you don't have tomorrow, but you've got right this minute to call out to the Lord and make sure that you're saved. Alex, it's the demon contest in Screwtape Letters. 
Oh, yeah. If you remember that, where there's a contest of who can gather the most souls into hell, right? So the, the demons say, well, I got one. I'll just tell them there's no heaven. And they say, no, there's a lot of people thinking there's a heaven. And then the, the next demon said, well, I'll just tell them there's no hell. Mm-hmm. And then the response is, well, I think people think if there's a, a good place, there's probably a bad place. And then the, the winning demon says, look, it, I'll tell them there's a heaven. I'll tell them there's a hell. But I'll tell them there's no hurry to make a decision about where you're going to be. Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. Um, Led Zeppelin was wrong in the song Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks. There's still time to change the road you're on. Uh, that That's a lie. Uh, you don't know that there's tomorrow. I mean, you really don't. Yeah, you don't. But you do have right now. The Bible says now is the appointed time. Now is the day of salvation. But, um, you know... Uh, I, I gotta say I, I'm I'm old school. People sometimes say I'm old school, but I just I think it's it's not old or new. It's just the right thing to do. That when you become aware of your accountability to God, um, the the wisest thing you'll ever do is to make sure that you are in right relationship with the God that that you will face one day. Mm-hmm. And um, you know Hebrews nine twenty seven. Speaking of knowing Scripture. And, you know, God is a God of love. God is a God of great love and grace and blessing. But Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. And the thing about it is, God knows, God because God is omniscient and knows all things, God knows the day that, that you will leave this world. And we don't know, but uh, God knows. And so... The thing, I, I believe this, that God does everything possible to bring us to a point where we can be saved. But the one thing God won't do is override our free will. You know, God will offer salvation, mm-hmm. but he doesn't force it. Because, And the reason is because God desires a relationship with us. And a relationship has got to be voluntary. It can't be coerced. And, and the Holy Spirit of God is, um, uh, he woos us to Christ, he beckons, he calls, God makes overtures, but he's not going, if, if you don't want Jesus in your life, God won't make you. But God does love you so much that I, I, I think that people that, um, and I've had atheists that have turned to Christ say, in fact, about a year ago, a, a dear friend of mine who was an atheist, till his 40s, he became a born-again Christian. We did an event with Will Graham, and this uh, dear friend of mine, after four decades plus of being an atheist, he accepted Christ. And you know what he told me, Bill? He said um, many of those years of his atheism, he said he felt like the Holy Spirit was shouting, come to me. Mm. Isn't that something? It's fantastic. So, Alex, just in the couple minutes we have left, I want to bring in the verse I've been waiting all half hour to bring in. And that's Uh-oh. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. And that says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And I think... When God commands us to live with an eternal perspective, whenever I whenever I hear God commanding us to do something, my, my first response is we're probably being commanded because doing it naturally doesn't come naturally. 
doesn't come naturally to do it, so we're being commanded to do it. Yeah. Wow. You know, this is really good, Second Corinthians four seventeen and 18. Of course, you know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book titled The Weight of Glory, W-E-I-G-H-T, uh, and it comes from Second Corinthians four seventeen. that book title. Um, I mean, the, the word there that's translated weight, I mean, the gravity of it all, I mean, this is reality. I mean, the unseen world is the most real thing in our lives. Isn't that something? Yeah. This phys physical world in which we live um, is momentary, it's transient, it's fleeting away, and it's the unseen world that is the most tangible, most real thing. But you know what? I was reading this one day a long time ago, uh, and I was thinking about Lewis's book called The Weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, and I thought the W-A-I-T, The Weight of Glory. Mm. Because here, here's the thing. We often think about, you know, doing some great thing for God, you know. If, if for some reason we had a microphone and could speak to the entire world, you know, we would do some grandiose thing for the Lord, and maybe we'll get that opportunity. But I think we have to, during this journey of life, one of the ways that we show our loyalty to Christ is to be sweet to our family members and to be a person of character who keeps their word. Mm-hmm. And remember that we're a witness, and we, we're mindful of the W-E-I-G-H-T, the weight of glory, but we're mindful of the W-A-I-T, the weight, that every day is a day to uh, basically let our life be a thank you note to Jesus. Yeah, amen. So I just got a note, uh, Dr. McFarland is an old school, he's smart school. I love that. <laughs> well, so, Alex, I, I, I hope so. To yeah. God be the glory. Amen to that. Have a great day rest of the day and blessings to you on everything God has for you to do this week. Uh, please keep me in prayer. I'll be in New York tomorrow uh, doing some interviews, so I value everyone's prayers. Please. Indeed, we will. Thank you so much, Alex. Thanks, brother. All right. Take a little break. When we come back, Jeff Verdorn is my guest. For the full hour, we're going to continue our series on who is this Jesus. According to my mathematical calculations, we're up to episode number 14. Can hardly wait. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.